Alrighty, John chapter 19. <clears throat> so we began uh, this new section in, in, in John, centri- centering around Jesus' trial before Pilate, and we noted last week how Jesus' trial before the Jewish authorities, which was before this one, John only devotes uh, a couple of verses to it. We don't get much content. But John devotes 29 verses to this section in which Jesus is before Pilate. Now, that's significant. John is using this trial now to continue to demonstrate to us that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the true King of the Jews, the Savior of the world. And the trial unfolds in three scenes. And in each of these scenes, Pilate comes out to the Jews. They're standing outside of the the, the headquarters where he's at. He comes out to them and... He uh, takes Jesus back in with him into his headquarters to interrogate Jesus. And then he comes back out to proclaim Jesus' innocence, to which he is confronted again with the Jews' demands to crucify Jesus. And this happens three times. He comes out, goes in, comes out, and is met with Jewish opposition each time. And until finally the third time, he gives in and uh, goes ahead with with the crucifixion. But in each of these scenes that we get here, John is giving us a portrait of Christ. So I've entitled this this section, Three Portraits of the True Kingship of Christ in His Trial Before Pilate. You see, John not only wants to teach us about the events of Christ's trial and crucifixion, he wants us to see the significance of those events. He wants us to see how these events themselves testify to Christ's true kingship. He wants us to see the glories of Christ and the glories of what Christ accomplished through what appeared to be a shame and defeat and failure. So you see, a proper response to the narrative of Christ's passion, what we get in this gospel and in all the gospels, is not a feeling of pity for Christ. I think so often people treat these stories in this, in this way as though the proper response is to just feel really sorry for Christ and how much he was so mistreated and how much he suffered. I don't know if you remember when the movie The Passion of Jesus Christ came out. You remember that? Many people went to the movie theaters to watch the movie and came out being greatly moved by what they had just seen crying, feeling sorrowful over what, what happened to Jesus. And it was a kind of a emotional experience produced by the shock of the, the visual portrayal of, of these things taking place to, to Christ, his sufferings. And it was used by an evangelistic tool by, by many people, and, and many people came away from the movie emotionally moved. I mean, how could you not be, right? But with these kinds of feelings of of sorrow, pity for Christ, how much he was mistreated, and, and they thought they had been saved. They, they thought they, they had really believed in, in Jesus. But the problem with that is that that is not saving faith. Even if you really believe the story was true, and even if you believe those things really happened to Jesus, that's not saving faith. That's not the response that John or any of the gospel writers desire from you as you read these stories. 
Has it ever occurred to you how few details the gospel writers give you about Christ's sufferings and his crucifixion? Sometimes all we get is they took him out and he was crucified. That's it. We don't get many of the gory details. The writers don't spend a lot of time describing the horrible sufferings of Christ. And they were horrible. Believe me, they were horrible. Because their aim is not merely an emotional response. The proper response to Christ's passion is not feeling sorry for Christ or having feelings of pity for Christ because of the great sufferings he experienced. That's not the right response. Well, then what is? It is faith in what Jesus accomplished through his sufferings. Yes, there's certainly a degree of sorrow in that we recognize that ultimately it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. I was part of that same world that called out for Christ's crucifixion. So I should be moved by the depths of his love and all that he suffered for me. But the main thing the gospel writers are trying to accomplish in these passion narratives is the demonstration that Christ's cross is what authenticated him as the Messiah. That his cross being the moment of his greatest suffering and shame and apparent defeat was actually the moment of his greatest triumph as the true king. That through his rejection by man and crucifixion, Jesus was willingly laying down his life to be a substitute, to take the judgment of God on himself, which those who crucified him deserve. That before as Messiah, he comes to judge the world, and one day he will judge the world. He first comes to be judged and to be condemned by the world and to take the very judgment the world deserves from him on himself. That is the right response. That is what John is seeking from you. That's the fundamental problem with movies like The Passion, in which we're not given any theology about the significance of his death. No firm basis for our faith to lay hold of. So put it simply, true faith and the proper response to these stories looks like a confident knowledge in what Christ accomplished in these events and a desperate dependence on Christ to be my Savior because of what he accomplished in these events. And this is just what John is doing in this gospel and and in this section where we are at this morning. In Christ's trial before Pilate, he will be mistreated, falsely accused, beaten, rejected, and ultimately condemned to crucifixion. And the proper response that John is seeking from us is not pity, but a confident realization that through all these events, Christ is showing himself to be the true king and is accomplishing all the Father's plans of redemption. For your eternal life. And that's good news, my friends. It's very good news. And so John, chapter 18, verses 28 through 19, verse 16, we receive these three portraits of the true kingship of Christ in his trial before Pilate. And last week, we received the first portrait in verses, chapter 18, verses 28 through 40, which showed us that Jesus is the true king And as such, he is establishing his kingdom through his cross. But this week, we we come now to the second portrait. That's found in chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. 
which tell us that Jesus, the true king, is despised and rejected by men. So since Pilate's first attempts to release Jesus have failed, so he's first saying he took Jesus in, interrogated him, comes out, I find no fault in him, and the Jews demand instead that he release Barabbas instead of Jesus to them. So now he's going to attempt to release Jesus another way. And uh, obviously Pilate's not some great lover of justice. He doesn't want to, you know, what happens to a, a Jewish teacher doesn't matter too much to him. As much as trying to maintain the peace, this is a very volatile time in Jerusalem, Passover. Spirits are high. And he also doesn't like being pushed around by the Jewish leadership. And so he's trying to release Jesus. And, and this time he takes Christ back into the praetorium, the headquarters, to, to punish Jesus, to humiliate him, hoping this will be enough to satisfy the crowd. So look at verses 1 to 3 with me. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And in these verses, we see how the king of the Jews, the true king, is mocked and mistreated. So Pilate takes Jesus back inside where he is whipped or flogged. Now, there were three forms of Roman flogging or whipping. The first is is called fustigatio, or we would call it beating. The second would be flagellatio, meaning flogging. And the third was called verberatio, meaning scourging. And the last one there is probably the one that comes to most of our minds, verberatio. It was the most severe of all three forms. It's performed with leather whips, the lips containing pieces of bone or metal that was meant to rip the flesh off the victim. The soldiers were not given any limit to strokes. They were allowed to perform this until they were physically exhausted and couldn't carry it out any longer. Uh, The bones and the entrails of the victim were often exposed after this kind of a a beating. Um, Some people actually considered it a, a merciful thing, this kind of beating always accompanied a death sentence, especially crucifixion. You receive the condemnation of crucifixion. You, This is the first thing that, that happens to you, this kind of scourging. And it was considered a merciful thing because the victim usually was so worn out, sometimes they didn't even survive the whipping. But when they did, they didn't last long on the cross. So horrible was the cross that this is better. That's how it was often called. So this is what Jesus receives in Matthew 27, verse 26. Then... Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him over to be crucified. But this is probably not what takes place here. Because his death sentence has not yet been passed, you see. Pilate is still trying to release him, as we see in verse 4. He's going to bring him out and declare he's innocent. He's trying to release him still. So this is probably the first form of the Roman beating, fustigatio. It was probably still quite severe, but not as severe as the latter kind. So Pilate's purpose here is simply to satisfy the Jews, to punish Jesus for being some kind of troublemaker and and to give him some kind of punishment and, and satisfy the crowds. And we get a confirmation of this in Luke 22. 
Pilate comes out and says, what evil has he done? I find no guilt deserving of death. So no sentence of condemnation. I will therefore punish and release him. That's probably what is going on here. So Jesus was beaten twice. While this was the less severe form, it still would have been painful and potentially quite, quite brutal. But that isn't the only thing that happens to Jesus in these verses. After his beating, he is next mocked and humiliated by a band of Roman soldiers. Soldiers know Jesus is being punished for claiming to be the king of the Jews and in order to humiliate him, as if to show how ridiculous such a claim actually was, they dressed Jesus up as this mock king. And you know the story. They, they, they first crown him with thorns. And this was probably not so much to inflict pain as much as, as it was to make some kind of a mock crown, to, to make fun of him, a, a make fun kingly crown. Then they dress him up with, with what was probably an officer's robe, purple in color, a symbol of royalty and honor. And they hold a false coronation ceremony. They come and cry, Hail, King of the Jews, mimicking the common saying, Ave Caesar, Hail Caesar. And then on top of this, they express their allegiance to him with repeated slaps in his face. Look at verse 3. They they struck him with the hands. The the verb in Greek indicates repeated slaps. They, They were striking him repeatedly with their hands. So the purpose of this is they were putting on an ironic show in which Jesus is treated in a way that no real king would ever be treated in order to humiliate Jesus, to mock any claim of kingship by him. But as we've already seen, the irony, could it be thicker, could it? Because Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews. He's the true king. Leon Morris put it this way, He said, the soldiers doubtless conceived of themselves as witty fellows, able to devise an ironical situation. But the real irony lay in the fact that the one whom they so mocked is indeed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Craig Keener likewise put it this way. He says, the irony of the narrative is that it inverts their own irony. He is genuinely the person whom they sarcastically claim him to be. You see, long before this, Isaiah had prophesied about a coming king who would save God's people and establish God's kingdom, but he would be a servant king. A king unlike anything this world has ever known or ever seen. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, the servant speaks, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. A rejected king, a king who would endure suffering and would depend on God, not his own strength, for vindication. A king whose suffering would make atonement for the very people rejecting and despising him. In other words, what the soldiers do to mock Christ and his kingship actually testifies to his very identity as servant king. So the true king is mocked and rejected by the world, Jew 
and Gentile. And with Jesus' punishment and humiliation by the Roman soldiers now complete, Pilate comes back out to the Jews to attempt to release Jesus once again. But he'll be met with strong resistance. Look at verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. So the point of these verses is to declare that Christ, the true king, is rejected by his own, the Jews. So Pilate comes out first by himself in verse 4 to announce the second time he's found no guilt deserving of death in Jesus. And then he's going to bring Jesus out to to show them how Jesus has been punished and humiliated, hoping to satisfy the the crowds. And so in verse 5, Jesus now comes out still wearing the crown of thorns, the robe, clearly been beaten. And Pilate declares, behold, the man. Pilate is still continuing his mockery of Jesus. His purpose is to show how absolutely ridiculous is any suggestion that Jesus could be a true king or any kind of threat to the Romans. He's saying, look at the man. What kind of threat could, could this man possibly be? Carson put it this way, here is the man you find so dangerous and threatening. Can you not see that he is harmless and somewhat ridiculous? So that's what Pilate is saying here. But again, as with so many in this gospel, Pilate speaks better than he knows. Jesus truly is the man. He is God who took on flesh to become a man. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's because Jesus is the man, because of his very enfleshment, that he could be put to death and so sinfully treated. It's primarily because he is a man that he could be the true king and through his crucifixion accomplish redemption and put on display the wonders of redeeming love in a way that's never been displayed before. Behold the man. That's a call for every one of us. Behold the man, Christ Jesus. So this is Greek. So it's hot anthropos, so a very general word for a a human being. Um, In the Old Testament, I'm trying to think how Adam is translated into Greek. It's possible it is hot anthropos. There could be a a connection there to Christ being the the true final Adam. Yeah, yeah. It's good. It's a good observation. So behold the man is what Pilate calls out to the crowds. Well, Pilate's fail, uh, attempt fails once more now. The Jewish leadership isn't buying it, and they cry out instead for Christ's crucifixion. Verse 6, they, they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Um, seeing Jesus arrayed as such a pathetic king, it only fuels their desire for his, for his death. And, and now Pilate's fed up. Look at verse 6. 
He, he tells them, take him yourselves and, and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. So Pilate's obviously speaking sarcastically here. He's not giving them the legal right to go crucify Jesus. It wasn't lawful for the Jews to do that. He's in essence saying, you bring him to me to judge, but you don't accept my judgment. I'm done with working with, with you stubborn people. I've already rendered my judgment. There's nothing more I can do. Take him yourself. Crucify him. So Pilate's attempt to release Jesus has failed, and the Jews' original charges against Jesus have likewise failed. And now they bring up their real reason why they want Jesus dead. Look at verse 7. Remember, their original charge was Jesus has made himself king in opposition to Caesar, and now they bring up the real reason. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Pilate's declaration, behold, the man has only aroused the Jews' real reason why they desire Christ's death. It's because he, being a man, has made himself God. That's exactly what they said back in chapter 10, verse 33. Not for a good work we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. The charge is blasphemy. Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God, which they rightly understood, not only implied his Messiahship, but his very deity, placing himself on the same level of authority and rights as God himself. And in the the Gospel of John, it's primarily Christ's claims of deity that is at the heart of the Jews' reason for putting him to death. And we've seen this over and over, John 5.18. It's why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. He wasn't only breaking the Sabbath, but calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Same thing in chapter 8. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And they're ready to, to stone him. The Jews say that they have a law, and that law refers to the law against blasphemy. Leviticus 24.16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. That's why the Jews want Jesus dead. But ironically, Jesus has not made himself anything, has he? Rather, he has made it plain throughout his ministry he is indeed the Son of God. And it's only because they've been hardened to that truth that they think this law requires Jesus' death. Had they known Jesus rightly, they would know that this law was not at all demanding his death. Or to put it another way, the reason they want him dead is not because of their fidelity to the law of Moses, but because they have failed to rightly believe in the one who Moses has written about and was pointing to. That's the real reason the Jews want Jesus dead. Their own unbelief and spiritual blindness. So Jesus is the true king. He is the son of God who became man. And even though he made the world, And even though he was the king of the Jews, he's rejected by both, Jew and Gentile. John 1, 10 through 11, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's the response of blind humanity to Christ. But this was his plan. It was his plan for in his rejection, he would accomplish the redemption of the very people who wanted his death, including you and I, for we once belonged to the world as well. 
So this is the second portrait of of Christ as the true king. He's despised and rejected of men. But now Pilate will go on once more back into the praetorium to the headquarters to question Jesus and will attempt to release him one more time. And so this is the final portrait of Christ that we get. In John 19, verses 8 to 16, Jesus, the true king, is condemned for the salvation of the world, which deserves his judgment. So the Jews' words about Jesus have made Pilate feel quite uneasy. Look at verse 8. They just said he's the son of God. He claims to be the son of God. Verse 8, Pilate, when he heard this statement, was even more afraid. So he's been afraid and uneasy throughout this trial. He's been trying to maintain this peace in an already volatile situation in in Jerusalem. He's been confronted by Jesus, who's unlike anything he's ever experienced before. And now he hears the Jews' real motive, which is Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Now you need to remember, Pilate is a Roman. And as a Roman, he was very superstitious. He obviously believed in many gods and he knew the many stories about the gods, about how they would often appear in human form who would judge those who would mistreat them. Think back to your college literature class, uh, The Odyssey. How many read that back in the day? Homer, listen to what he writes. I, the gods, in the guise of strangers from afar, put on all manner of shapes and visit the cities, beholding the violence and the righteousness of men. Pilate knew these stories, and he hears Jesus as son of God. He's already considered a very strange person. So he's shaken up by these words. I mean, after all, he's just had Jesus beaten, right? And so Pilate calls Jesus in again to to question him, and and he asks him in verse 9, where are you from? If Jesus is indeed one of these divine men that Pilate has heard about. Pilate wants to make sure he doesn't mistreat him any further. But in verse 9, we're told that Jesus gave him no answer. Now, why not? Why doesn't Jesus say anything here? I think there's a few reasons. I think, number one, it's because there was no simple answer to the question. How could Jesus quickly explain all that it means that he is the son of God to Pilate who has all these superstitious ideas about the gods? And Jesus has already tried to show Pilate who he is and what his mission is, and Pilate has been uninterested in learning about Jesus. If Jesus told him, Pilate wouldn't have understood, nor would he have believed it. And it's also possible if Jesus said, yes, I'm from God, it would just be the thing that would seal his release and let him go. And Jesus is not trying to escape death. Jesus also remained silent to continue to fulfill his role as the servant king. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Silent. And he opened not his mouth. He's not seeking to save himself from death, but he goes as a willing sacrifice. That's what we see here. Well, this only frustrates Pilate all the more. Look at verse 10. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Don't you know that I have authority to release him and authority, release you and authority to crucify you? So Jesus' silence not only looks stupid, but it it looks disdainful of Pilate's authority and he's frustrated. And so now Jesus will speak. 
And he does so to highlight the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man in the death of the true king. Look at verse 11. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So this verse has two parts. In the first part, Jesus plainly declares the sovereignty of God over Pilate and any ability Pilate has to crucify Jesus. Jesus said, you would have no authority over me at all if it was not given to you from above or from God. Now the question is, what is that it? If it was not given to you. You might think it is authority. If the authority wasn't given to you, and that's certainly true. God gives authority to kings and and rulers, but... I don't think that's what the it here refers to. In Greek, it can't refer to authority because if you study another language, you know grammatical gender has to match up and it doesn't match up here. Rather, I think that what God has given to Pilate is none other than this whole situation, the betrayal of Christ itself. I think Jesus is saying something like this. You would have no authority to put me to death at all if God did not give me over to you through the betrayal. My being betrayed to you has been given to you from God. If that was not the case, then you would not have any authority over me at all. The only reason you have any authority over me is because ultimately God is the one who's handed me over to you through the hands of sinful men. God is somehow behind all this. The only reason why Pilate is even in the position where he can make a decision about Christ is because God has already ordained Jesus to be betrayed into his hands. The death of Christ, the true king, is the plan and the purpose of God. But there's another important part. Look at the second half. He says, the one who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. That is to say, while God is ultimately in charge of these events leading to my death, man is still responsible and culpable for his sinful acts. God often uses the sins of man to accomplish his good and wise purposes while he himself doesn't sin and he doesn't take away their responsibility. And the crucifixion of the Son of God was the greatest sin ever committed in human history and God ordained it. And he ordained it to be accomplished through the real and punishable sins of people. It's exactly what Acts tells us. Acts 4, this city were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place, which was the greatest sin in human history. So the second half of this verse implies there is such a thing of degrees of sin. Do you see that? He says, the one who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In other words, Pilate is guilty, but it's just not the greatest guilt. The greatest guilt, the greatest sin, belongs to the one that betrayed Jesus to Pilate. Who's that? I don't think it's Judas. Obviously, Judas betrayed Jesus, but not to Pilate. It's it's Caiaphas. It's the high priest. You see that back in chapter 18, verse 30 and verse 35. Same word. Pilate was not out to destroy Christ, in other words. He's not going to bear the greatest guilt. He's going to be guilty, punishable. 
The greatest guilt belongs to the Jewish leadership that's been after the death of Christ from day one. Well, Pilate probably didn't understand fully everything Jesus just said, but he just knows he wants to be done with this trial. And he's now determined to release Jesus. But what happens in the following verses is the deciding factor. It will be the point which Pilate turns a complete 180. Calls him to change his mind and sentence Jesus to, to death in accord with God's plan and purpose. In verses 12 to 15, the true king is judged by the world which he will one day judge. Look at verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And that is the tipping point. The Jews pull out their final argument. Why Pilate cannot let Jesus go. If Jesus has made himself a king, this means that he is in fundamental opposition to Caesar. He set himself up as a rival king to Caesar. You see, the Jews are so full of hate to Christ that they are acting more loyal to Caesar than even Pilate is. They rejected any hope even for a promised king of the Jews. So full of hate. And so if Jesus claims to be a king, then releasing him would mean that Pilate's not Caesar's friend. That means a loyal supporter of Rome. He's the governor in service to to Caesar. Again, Craig Keener notes, he says, to release a self-proclaimed king was to accommodate treason, hence to warrant execution oneself. So Pilate's own person and political position are on the line here. It's being threatened by the Jews' words. And, And with that, Pilate now takes his seat On the judgment seat, look at verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Aramaic, Gabbatha. When a governor would issue a formal sentence of condemnation, he would do it seated seated on his tribunal, his bema seat, his bematos. That's what we have here. In other words, Pilate turns a complete 180 in this verse. After the threat of verse 12, he's ready to give Jesus over to condemnation but what we as readers of john know is that jesus is actually the judge of all is he not john 5 22 the father judges no one but has given judgment all judgment to the son as pilate sits as the judge of jesus jesus is actually the judge who's going to be crucified first for the salvation of his people and establishment of his kingdom. But one day the tables will be turned and Pilate and the world will be standing before the judgment seat of Christ. The same Jesus to whom the Father has entrusted all authority, but before then Jesus must first die for the salvation of the same world that crucified him. And so... With Jesus' condemnation almost sealed, we get one more interchange between Pilate and the Jews. Look at verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, simply meaning it's the day before the Sabbath on Passover week. And it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So Pilate again once more mocks the Jews and mocks Jesus by hailing Jesus as their king. 
Even though he knows they, they don't want him as their, their king, he's taunting them and he's mocking Jesus. And To which the Jews respond with cries for his crucifixion in verse 15 once more. They cried out again, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate then sarcastically questions if they really want to crucify their, their king, even though he knows they don't want them him as king. Verse 15, Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? Again, taunting them. But Pilate's question now leads them to make the most astonishing of all declarations, and this is the climax of the scene. Look at verse 16. End of verse 15. Then verse 16. Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, the leaders of the Jews, we have no king but Caesar. So deep is their hatred for Christ, that they willingly reject all of God's promises and any hope for a Messiah. And they sell themselves out completely to Rome. Ironically, since they belong to the world, Caesar is appropriately their king. D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, by vehemently insisting they have no king but Caesar, they're not only rejecting Jesus' messianic claims, they are abandoning Israel's messianic hope as a matter of principle, rejecting any claimant, and finally disowning the kingship of the Lord himself. We don't have any king but Caesar. It reveals the utter lengths to which sinful men are willing to go in their rejection of Christ. So intent are they in Christ's death, they betray everything else to achieve it. And with that, we come to verse 16 now. The true king is condemned by the world which he came to save. Look at verse 16. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Jesus is willingly judged by the world, which hates him. And even though he's the judge of all and will day, one day judge all men, he came the first time not to condemn the world, but to be condemned by the world. What's happening here? Because through that he would accomplish Redemption for all of his people who at one time belonged to the same evil system of the world, just like you and me. It's the magnitude of redeeming love put on display. And with this sentence, Jesus cross, what he's been preparing for, his whole ministry, what he's predicted, which is under the complete sovereign control of God, Christ's cross is now, is now underway. And that's what we will pick up next week um, on the scene of his crucifixion. So John has given us three portraits of the true kingship of Christ and his trial before Pilate. The true king is establishing his kingdom through his cross. The true king is despised and rejected of men. And the true king is condemned for the salvation of the world, which deserves his judgment. What a wonderful Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. I ask for the ministry of your spirit now to apply what we've just heard to our hearts, granting us greater, deeper faith, eyes to behold more of Christ's glory, that we love him, be faithful to him, and rejoice in glory in our Redeemer. We love you. Bless us as we go now, in Jesus' name, amen.